podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles. With me are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. In today's episode, we'll be talking about Elrond, Master of Rivendell. And in our open topic, we'll be talking about how to get into competitive gaming. So our first segment is Elrond, Master of Rivendell. Strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you've been summoned here to answer the threat of Mordor. Middle-earth stands upon the brink of destruction. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Ian, whenever you are ready. All right. So, Elrond, Master of Rivendell, he comes in at a base points cost of 170. He has the Elf, Rivendell, Infantry, Hero, and Keywords. His profile is basically standard, like like every other Elf Lord, his base profile. Um, so it's move 6, fight 6, uh, 3 plus shoot, strength 4, d5, tax 3, wounds 3, courage 7, and then 3, 3, 3 for might, will, fate. And he has, okay, well, a lot of special rules, but I'll go over his options first. His options are for heavy armor for 10 points and a horse for 10 points. Okay, I guess first thing to note is he also, one of his special rules is that if there are Rivendell Knights in his warband, they don't count towards the bow limit at all. So that's pretty much the way you can run like a full Rivendell Knight army, or you can use it to boost your bow limit a little bit. His war gear is uh, Hadhafang, um, which is an Elven made hand and a half sword. Um, which... Hadhafang, I think. Hadhafang? I don't know. Yeah. Not, not a, a Tolkien scholar, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, sorry, it's a hand and a half, uh, elven made hand and a half sword, and it gives him a bonus of plus one to wound against spirit models, which I don't know if I've ever used that. It's always nice to have, and I remember it partway through the game, and it, it never comes up. And he also has Vilya, which is uh, one of the elven rings, which gives him the standard uh, rerolling uh, fates. His heroic actions are heroic resolve, channeling, strike, and defense, and more special rules. <laughs> So he has Terror, Woodland Creature, and uh, Lord of the West. Those ones are all kind of standard. And then he has Foresight of the Elder. So before the game begins, you roll a d6 and you make note of the result. These are Elrond's Foresight points. And then during any priority phase, after the dice have been rolled, Elrond can expand these Foresight points to alter the controlling player's dice roll for each one expended by plus one or minus one to a minimum of one and a maximum of six. So, nice little handy thing to have. We always love having extra priority shenanigans. I'm sure anybody who runs Balin will tell you that. And lastly, he has a couple of magical powers. The first one is Wrath of Bruinen, which has a casting value of 4+. And we should all remember that its range is now 3 inches because of the FAQ. That's very important. And then his second spell is Renew with a 12-inch range and a 3-plus to cast. We should also note that he can't use his Foresight points unless he's on the battlefield. That was an amusing point in the most recent FAQ. Oh, and Ian, you, you said um, Rivendell Knight's in his warband. It's, it's in the whole army. My bad, you're right. You know, Elrond, I think, is one of the most recognizable characters in the whole game for obvious reasons. He's been around since the beginning of the first edition. He's a prominent figure in Lord of the Rings. In a way, I feel like he's one of those heroes that's very good and is just buried under the depth of the rest of the list that he's in. Because he has a great profile. He can do a handful of different things. Very useful. I think the one issue that comes up is that he's usually, you know, we've talked before a lot about how Glorfindel is the go-to Lord of the West hero, and that obviously he's a little bit more points efficient than Elrond, 
And so I think he gets knocked down, you know, to a, a second or a third place really in Rivendell's heroes behind Glorfindel and Gilglad. And really with Rivendell, with how expensive the heroes are, you often only really get to pick one of them in most lists. And so he gets left out a lot. But I think he's a very potent hero, obviously very versatile. He's able to do, you know, two, three things for your army all at once. Again, the priority uh, little tidbits there. And of course, the ability to boost your army through his Rivendell Knight special rule. I think I've got to disagree with you, Alex, on that he's rarely seen. Because I actually think he is quite often seen, especially more than Gilgalad. I think mostly due to Gilgalad's restrictions and all that. What I like about Elrond is he's not just your regular beat stick. He has a lot of utility to him. I think, you know, he might not be the most efficient hero, but I guess like similar to certain wizards, you're spending a bit more for the model to be able to access certain abilities that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. If we did this episode about a year ago, I think that I'd be a bigger fan of this profile, but I think he's gotten like the short end of the stick FAQ after FAQ. So the first one being the one that Ian mentioned with the Nature's Wrath, I think the intention of that one was to stop the abuse of Radagast. But because of how nerfs and balance works in this game, they kind of just do like a overall, like the entire ability or the entire profile. And I think it affected Elrond when it didn't need to. Like, I didn't think he was too powerful. And then with the latest one, with the change on his foresight points, not being able to use it in Maelstrom, and also just the change to renew, where if you renewed a model's lost wound, it still would count towards your enemy's VP. I think those two changes were to make the Vanquisher's Legendary Legion more balanced, but they affected Elrond's entire profile. By the way, if you want to know our thoughts on the Vanquishers Legion, we're not going to cover it today, but if you go to our Saruman episode, we do cover it more extensively. Bear in mind that was before the FAQ. So I think that he has a lot of little utilities to him, and they were kind of unnecessarily nerfed. He was like collateral damage. He just got in the way because the other there were other heroes that you know were too strong, and he was a part of that combo. I think he's like, in this edition at least, I think he's going to be at best mediocre because he's also the least fighty for his points out of all the Elven Lord profiles. Like, even Celeborn being on foot, he's able to uh, cast Enchanted Blades on himself and he's much cheaper. He's obviously less fighty than Gilglad and Thranduil, and he doesn't have the fight seven that Glorfindel has. So I just think Rivendell already lacking in hitting power and lacking in dealing damage, like that's just the primary weakness. And Elrond taking up so many points doesn't give you the hitting power that you need for like the amount you're paying. I don't know, man. Like, I agree, but I still feel like he brings almost everything you want, even though he is almost 200 points. The spells are nice, the priority reroll is nice, the, the cav not counting towards bow limit is nice. Like, that's a lot of, like, smaller buff things that none of those other big elven lords get. And even though Wrath of Bruinen is, it, it doesn't have as big of an effect it used to do, I feel like now it's easier to cast because the bubble is so much smaller. It's less likely you're going to get a hero within range, but you'll still be able to get, like, a reasonable number of troops within range. That's more theory. I don't know. I didn't use it a ton before it was changed. So. Oh, 
I, I hate that argument. <clears throat> I um, mean, no, no. I, I would still prefer it at a six-inch range. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. But I still think there is some merit to that. Ian's over here looking for a silver lining in that. And, you know, I, I think it's an interesting argument, but I still fail to see it as really a, as a benefit. A six-inch nature's wrath that puts everyone on the ground is, you know, much better than a three-inch range. Yeah, the thing is, you can control it, especially when you're going in, right? So, from my experience anyway, that's most of the time when you're going to use it on that first charging turn. So, 6-inch or 3-inch, like, if you have the 6-inch bubble, you can adjust it however you'd like. So, there's no uh, downsides to having a bigger range. But I guess what you're saying is a more niche situation where, I guess, the lines have already clashed and, like, it's a slog fest and you can't really control the distance anymore and you're covering more ground, which includes covering more heroes, right? I I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that. I still think it was a significant nerf, but I guess to come to his defense a little bit, I also think uh, like his, his special rule where it allows you to take all Rivendell Knights that in itself has become sort of like a legendary legion. It might not necessarily have any like other special rules in addition to that, but from what we've seen, it is a fairly competitive list to run that style, and he is literally the only option. So I think that's kind of cool. It's almost like, um, you know, now it's like the Balrog, Depths of Moria legendary legion where you have to run the Balrog. So it's a style that only he can run. I think that gives them a couple more points compared to some of the other heroes. I can see that. That's probably like the one use I would use him for. But I think in my list today, I'll kind of show that where I think he's a little bit mediocre. If you bring Elrond and you don't take heavy cav, I just think that his other abilities, you know, it's the same critique that I had for Durin and Lurtz, where they come with a lot of little things that might help you, but... Overall, it's like, if you don't use them, it's like buying a cereal variety pack. If you only like those three out of five, then the other two are wasted. And it's just like, you're never in a situation where you're going to use all of them. And because you're probably paying for like the plus one to wound spirits, you're you're paying for the, the re-rolling fate, you're paying for, you know, just a lot of little things that may not add up to much. Charles, are you trying to say that of all the Lords of the West, Elrond is the corn pops? Because I don't think so. He's the corn yeah, I like corn He's pops. the corn yeah, pops. Yeah, what y'all yeah. talking about. Get out of here, Alex. <laughs> corn pops are amazing. There were, Maybe there lucky were, charms. Yeah, see what I mean? It's the pack. It's what comes out in the pack, and you're like, oh, corn pops is like is like fourth out of four. It's not that any of them are bad. It's just that, you know, corn pops is the least exciting of the four. But, you know, corn pops still has priority shenanigans and, and uh, is pretty reliable. He's 190 points. Like... I understand, like, in an all-mounted list, you need to take him, so there's a role for him, but I just think that most builds of Rivendell, he's not the number one pick. Just to get my rating out of the way, i probably give him a 6. I know it's crazy because I gave Kelborn a 7, but I just think right now he's only super competitive in, in the one build, which is Heavy Cav. He wouldn't be my number one pick in, like, most other Rivendell-type lists trying to remember what we gave what well at least what i gave freaking glorfindel and gilgala and i can't really remember <laughs> i think maybe nine nine and eight yeah something, something like that. that that sounds about right yeah yeah that's interesting that you you rank him lower than Kelleport. i'm so curious about that you guys 
Yeah. Well, because Kelborn actually like fulfills a role <clears throat> in Lothorian, right? Because Lothorian lacks like, hitting power, and he's like the beat stick. When you take Elrond, you're usually just going to take Gilgalad if you want a bigger hitter, right? Or if you want one that costs the same but hits twice as hard, you take the twins. So, like, you're taking Elrond for the utility, but he's 190 points. He's going to be at least half your points on heroes. So, I think I got to disagree. Um, the fact that you can just put a horse on him. Maybe I just already rate the horse a seven. So, like, you can't go any lower. I, I get where you're coming from, that, you know, I, I'm all about the efficiency, and I, I know he's not quite there. I actually think the recent FAQ about, like, not being able to use Foresight in Maelstrom is actually a big deal, because I think knowing how important it is a lot of the times to go second in Maelstrom, like, you can't abuse that anymore, does take him down a notch. But I think just being like a threes all around hero under 200 still has some magic and you can mount him. And he has the good heroic actions, right? He has strike and defense and rerolling fate. So he's a good leader. I think I would give him still a 7.5. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm the same as you, Richard. I think I'm at a 7.5 as well. Because he's like, like you said, like he still is a mounted Lord of the West. That's still worth something. And 190 is a lot when he's fully kitted out, but it's not it's not getting to like crazy kitted out Azog or like Aragon where you're getting like mid 200 levels where it's like, okay, I just like, this is too much, too many points. Like you still get a lot for what you're paying for. Uh, he probably could be a little cheaper, I, I would agree, but like, I don't think it's bad the way, like where he's at. So yeah, I think 7.5, I think. Yeah, I, th I think in terms of points efficiency, when you have to compare him with Glorfindel, who's 20 points cheaper, everything included, he could be a bit more efficient, but otherwise, he's still a very strong hero. Just for that, with everything else we've said, I'm going to give him a 7.5. Yeah, so in this week's list, it will be like a gauntlet style, where two of us brought 600-point lists and two of us brought 800-point lists. And then we'll go head-to-head -head and we'll go through our lists, and then we'll decide which one wins this week, just to switch up the format a little bit. But let us know on Facebook if you enjoy this type more than us just going through our lists and rating them. You can also find all of the lists that we talk about today on our Facebook page to search Into the West podcast. Okay, so let's go with Alex's list first. So Alex brought a 600-point list today. All right, so I have a 600-point Rivendell list. I have Elrond, fully kitted out. He's got his heavy armor and horse. 10 High Elf Warriors with Shield and Spear, 1 with Shield, Spear, and Banner, and 7 Rivendell Knights with Shield. And I have Bormir of Gondor with Shield and Horse. So it's uh, relatively self-explanatory. I have two big heroes. I don't suffer for Might because I have Bormir, who also has the March. Elrond brings everything we've talked about. Bit of magic casting, ability to manipulate priority rolls, the ability for my Rivendell Knights to not count towards the bow limit, so they're my seven bows there, quite mobile, able to move up to five inches, still shooting a turn, maneuvering around my opponent. The High Elf Warriors are pretty much there to die slowly. They're just going to sit around and try and win combats, generally shield a lot, and be a little bit more defensive. I think, like we talked about, the general idea for this list is to hit really hard the first turn or two of combat to be able to dictate when that combat starts, be able to get Elrond, Boromir, and the Knights in, 
obviously casts Wrath of Burnham in that first turn, knock down a few models, get in, do a lot of damage, and then either use that priority manipulation to be able to get back into combat or to pull out and regroup out of range of my opponent. So it's a very mobile list. I think it has the capability to hit hard if it, you know, is able to dictate its movement and its uh, charging. Aside from that, Boromir does Boromir things. The All the warriors and the knights are good for getting on objectives, especially the knights. You know, I'm actually okay with this list for once. Kind of like it. So when I first looked at your list, I saw that you're going for like the heavy cav that I had mentioned earlier, where like you're taking advantage of Elrond's rule where your knights don't count towards the bow limit. But then I was just wondering, well, why didn't he go just all cap if he already has seven? Because you have 11 warriors on foot, and it just, like, I feel like you don't, with your seven elf bows, um, that's, like, you might win some shoot war, but it's not enough to guarantee where the infantry's shorter movement won't matter. Like, I think it will matter, because if you only win, like, half the shoot wars, then the other half, you have to march forward, and half your army is kind of slogging behind or your knights are just riding behind your shield wall, which is only 11 models. I just think it's a little bit awkward. Like, I probably think it would be a better list if it was all knights in this case, and just rely on your priority buff, and then Bormir's March to get in close. This kind of list, where it's like half cav, half infantry, I think it works at larger points, but maybe not at 600 when your numbers are so low. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. It's, I think, like, on paper, it doesn't look too bad. But like Charles said, just envisioning how it plays out and what your strategy is, it is awkward. And, like, I'm not sure exactly what you want to do with the Knights. Because if you plan to do, like, a hammer and anvil and split up your Rivendell Knights from your infantry, then you're losing some of your shooting efficiency because you have no other warriors with bows on foot. And um, very likely you're not going to get the banner re-rolls, which is a pretty big detriment on the Rivendell Knights or on any cavalry. So I would probably even rather put the, the banner maybe on the, the Knights because that's kind of your hitting force. And you do get a slightly bigger range. So you might be able to get your heroes because right now you have your banner in the middle of your infantry block. I don't know how useful it would be to your cavalry and your mounted heroes. Yeah, I just, I'm not sure exactly how I would play this. So that's like my issue with this list. I agree with Charles, all Rivendell Knights would be stronger. Or if you go more the other way and go more of a traditional, like mostly infantry with one or two Knights would probably also be strong. And yeah, I guess like, I would also take infantry bows because right now you're not really taking advantage of that special rule because if you just took foot infantry bows, you would have approximately the same amount anyway. Yeah, I think obviously it's nice having nine might and two really beefy heroes at 600, but yeah, I'm just not sure about the synergy here. I'm trying to think if I would play this like your classic hammer and anvil because that, that is what it's set up for, right? You can just kind of put the troops out and just go, ah, Look at the troops, they have a banner. Pick on them easily, and then you whomp them with the cavalry. But, like, play it that way, or you play it the other way, where on objective scenarios, you just leave your shield guys hanging out at the back and go super aggressive with your cavalry. And it doesn't matter if all your cavalry die, because you're still not broken. I, 
don't know which way is better to play. I suspect you want to keep everybody together because your numbers are pretty low. But I just think if his um, banner's on foot, he wants that to be his center of engagement, right? Because if he wants his knights to be his main hitting force, like, I don't know. Logically, I think I would just do uh, all knights and then a mounted banner or mostly foot and then a foot banner. Mm. I think I agree with what you guys said earlier with this list. I would like it more if the banner was on one of the knights, which is kind of surprising. And if you had the, what is it, four bows that you could take on foot, then I think it comes together a lot better. But Yeah, because if, if the cavalry is like riding around as well, there's a chance that if the enemy has any sort of shooting, I feel like they can just pick at the infantry block because all your shots are with the knights. Yeah, so... If you're waiting for a counter argument, I'm having a very hard time actually formulating one. You know, been a pretty good number of points there. They're all very valid points. It is an awkward kind of setup. Uh, the only reason I didn't go completely mounted was because I was only going to get like another, you know, I was going to end up with like with the current setup, like 15 ish. And then if I was to ally in something else, I would end up again with probably mostly foot contingent there. And then I end up in a very similar situation. Yeah, I think it really depends on scenario and kind of, um, you know, where deployment happens it would make a big difference, too. But no, those are all really valid points, obviously. Uh, I don't I don't uh, deny that it can be a particularly difficult thing to put together. I really struggled with putting the banner on one of the knights or on foot, because I felt like on foot, if I did go kind of hammer and anvil, the banner would still be relatively central. Whereas if I put it on one of the knights, I worry that it would be more vulnerable, a little bit more out in the open. If it's on foot, then I have to be very particular about how I maintain my mounted models because they're really not that far away from, you know, running off and being out of range. Yeah, in your defense, you like you said, you do only have the seven knights. Do you really want one of them with a minus one to win the fight? I can see that argument, but I still feel like the army does function way better when it is together, which you're not going to be able to do as much as I think you hope. Okay, let's go over the next list, which is Richard's 600-point list today. Okay, so I'm going with a pure list, but it's quite extreme. It's not your standard Rivendell infantry block. So I have Elrond with the full kit, leading a Rivendell knight with shield and banner. And then I have Arwen on Asphaloth. And in the next warband, I have Eladan and Elrohir with horse and heavy armor. And then in my last warband, I have the captain with the full kit. So 600 points and five models. Six? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, six, six models. I got the Rivendell Knight with the banner. Okay, so we talked about the nerf to the uh, Wrath of Brunin. But I thought it's still good enough to utilize, especially with an all-mounted force. And why not extrapolate that to an all-mounted hero force? And I think um, there's other options. Ian will go into it a bit more later to utilize this. But the way I chose to do it is include Arwen. So, of course, we see the twins a lot and Captain. Those are familiar models. I'm not going to go into them. They're just 
good fighters. But I think what makes this all hero force interesting is having Arwen. So I think she's not really a fighting threat, but I think what I want to do is on that first charge, it's easy to activate Elrond's Wrath of Brunin. So that will for sure go off. But it's the following turns where if you happen to lose the heroic move roll off, that's when you get in trouble. And having Arwen behind the rest of my cavalry, I'm not planning to throw her into combat right away, allows me to have a chance to knock everyone that countercharges my cavalry to the ground. And I think that's really useful. And alongside the foresight will allow my small contingent to survive a lot longer than people expect. So yeah, I think it's it's literally just mounted cavalry hero with Wrath of Rune and Spam. There's, I guess, not much else to it. But I think even though it's only six models, people might be surprised how hard it hits at 600 points. Because with Elrond, Twins, and Captain, you know, that is four strong mounted heroes. Hero combat all the first turn. You know, we're talking double digit kills. I like the ability to use Wrath of Brunin as like a defensive ability too, where like, I don't know if one of your heroes, if like, let's say Elrond doesn't win priority and you get pinned, then you can knock them over with Arwen so that like, they won't be able to strike you that turn. If like the whole line, you lose priority and you no one's getting the charge bonus, then yeah, like you, you would be able to fend them off and maybe save your horse from dying for another turn. But again, there's like the same risks as like any or most all hero lists, but this one's got a lot of hitting power for 600 points. My first thought was that, like, is six, like, like which four would your opponent target first to break you? I'm going to say probably Rivendell Knight, Arwen, Captain, and then the fourth one's going to be, like, the hardest one because your three remaining heroes are all, like, pretty formidable. So, and, and I mean, you'll see that coming and you'll probably protect your banner because you want to use it anyway. So honestly, it's probably harder to break than it looks. You just have to make sure, you know, one of the twins doesn't go crazy because if one of them dies early on, then the other one might be like out the door shortly after. I did wonder if you traded the captain and Arwen for Gorfindel would be better. Your breakpoint would go down by one, but you do get, as we talked about in the Gorfindel episode, another hero that's like really, really hard to kill. So it would bring your breakpoint down to three, but then that would be a different list because you would only have one Wrath of Brunin. But yeah, overall, I think it's pretty well built and uh, pretty solid for all hero list. And I wanted to keep it in the family. So I don't know, Glorfindel, whether he's a extended family member or not, like this is direct lineage. So thematic. It's even more green than a green list. It's in the family. I'm getting real Godfather uh, feelings out of that out of the way Richard's describing his list at this point. They had an Aowen and AMR eat your heart out. <laughs> and Theodred. <laughs> um, no, I really don't think it's surprising at all just how difficult this list would be to break. Uh, your leader can reroll his fate points. Your next two combat heroes are just, you know. You're not going to be able to beat them every time. They're When they charge, they're very um, good. They're very good. My first thought I found quite amusing when I saw this list, I was like, we just talked about how Wrath of Brunin got nerfed, and you're like, I can make up for that. 
I can have two of them. Now it's the original Wrath of Brunin all over again, except you cast it twice. And, and the way you've described using it is very interesting. I think that, if anything, that is what's going to catch your opponent off guard. I think your opponent would typically expect you to charge in everyone but Arwen and have Arwen countercharge. But to have Arwen negate countercharges, I think, would take a lot of players, kind of, you know, put them off balance. I think the only um, issue with that strategy is you have to be really careful of the positioning because you have to actually keep your heroes in a really tight ball, not only to surround Arwen, but because it's only three inch for the knockdown, it has to reach over your friendly cavalry's cavalry base and still be able to reach the enemy models. Yeah, you'd have to have her practically in base contact with your front line. It would be like having a banner within range. You'd have to be right there, which obviously also with your small numbers might put her in a very precarious position to be charged herself, uh, which could be quite dangerous. Opens up the door to being trapped quite a lot. Yeah, if you start losing horses, I think just by the fact that you're going to be on smaller base sizes, it's going to be way more easier for the opponent to get troops through. I, I don't think Arwen and uh, the banner are going to be very long for this world <laughs> in your games. Like, if they make it past the halfway mark, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> I don't know. It is it is interesting, though. You don't see kind of like all hero lists with this these kind of like numbers at 600, which is interesting. Because it is, like, six is, is actually like a lot for pretty much an all hero force. I looked into your future and I saw no horse. <laughs> okay, so now that we've reviewed the first two 600 point lists, now it's the showdown. So, firstly, um, uh, Richards for both. Next question. I wouldn't say that. I mean, all hero. So what we're going to do is we're going to debate which list is stronger, just generally, if they both went to a tournament. And then we're going to roll a random scenario from the match play guide. And then we'll pretend these two lists are actually fighting each other and decide the winner there. So overall, generally, I guess I can give them my quick thoughts. Like I said before, Alex's the main concern I have with this list is that it's a little bit awkward. Like I would prefer if it was mostly infantry or mostly cav. With Richard's list, it's an all hero list, which I think that in certain scenarios he would do really well. Because at 600 points, some lists won't have the tools to be able to stop him. But with an all hero list, there's always a chance that you're going to roll badly. And I think it's it's a bigger deal when you roll badly when every almost every model in your army is a hero. I think overall, I would say Richard's list would do better in a tournament, but like I can see Alex's list win, winning certain games too, but I think Richard's list would be stronger in more of the 18 scenarios. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's just tricky because they're both kind of like non-standard builds for the points level that they're at, right? Like, like you guys said, all hero lists are always kind of swingy. So, oh man, I don't know. Ugh. Maybe which one would you rather bring to a local tournament if it was a 600-point match? All random draw. I would probably rather run Alex's if it had the couple changes that we made. At least if it had, like, the, the bows on foot, I think. Yeah. Look at me going for all the bows. Who'd have thought? <laughs> so are you saying because Richards is technically max bow? Ah, <laughs> oh, shoot, you're right. <laughs> um... 
No, I, I'm just not, I, I'm not huge on all hero lists for like going out and trying to win tons of tournaments. And I think they function better possibly if you know what scenarios you're going to get going into it, right? Because then you, you need to make sure you avoid some of the ones that, that are going to be really hard for you, which you can't yeah, do. Yeah, I think Richard's list might struggle in like Maelstrom because his heroes might deploy separately, right? And then some of them are really fragile like Arwen and like they work best if they're together. So I understand that, but if, if it's a non-Maelstrom and they do deploy together, there are several armies I can think of in this game that at 600 points might have a really hard time. Let's uh, make it interesting. I'll go with Alexander's. Why not? Okay, call this a tiebreaker. <laughs> to roll, roll a random scenario in the match play guide. So it's going to be pool one. I rolled a three, so hold ground. So we'll just imagine they're playing hold ground, and it would be Richard's list against Alexander's list. We talked a lot about how like how important it is to deploy first, right? So, like, do you think that? Well, first of all, which list do you think would be favored in hold ground? If Richard has to deploy first and he gets a hero caught out, that's no bueno. But on the other hand, Alex has a lot more models, but like one round of heroic combats could get him like almost broken or broken. And then it won't it won't matter. But still I having think, those extra bodies to go to the middle is is big. So I think Alex will probably deploy together because Bormir has so much might, he can just spend the might and then deploy with Alrond. But I think Bormir having no will is a huge issue, or he has one will. Because I think he can be neutralized fairly quickly by magic. So I don't know if he's as powerful as he normally would be, because he'd probably be pretty easily neutralized. And, you know, if if you're able to get the twins into combat, that's a lot of attacks. And a couple of hero combats and their numbers, I, I don't know if Alex will remain the numbers advantage. If he had turns to shoot, I think it would go to Alex because uh, he'd probably shoot down several horses and Richard would probably have like heroes on foot slogging like from a couple points on the board. So then I think he would have the advantage because with heroes on foot, you won't be able to kill the warriors fast enough. The knights could just run away. So I think it could be either of their games. It really just depends on the Maelstrom deployment rules. I think that's really important and you could tell who was going to win by the end of the first turn or the second turn, I think. I'll just say this. I think this role for hold ground, I would say maybe, you know, controlled by the same player, I think Alex's list has the advantage. Generally, numbers is good in hold ground because there's only so many guys I can get in the center. And he also has heroic march. And we also know that Alex... Like, Alex's list is a bit awkward with the cav and the infantry, but if they're all together and fight together, it's not a bad list. And I think in this scenario, he'll have the opportunity to stay together, you know, especially if he can get to the middle, then he can, you know, take a defensive position there. So I think I would concede this matchup in this scenario. Yeah, we, we also didn't mention the fact that because of all the cav that Alex has, even though they are just foot troops, if he can make sure they're fighting Richard's heroes, his heroes aren't getting their extra dice in the attack, right? So then the twins mounted are going to be on two dice with the banner reroll against... I, I think cavalry against my list is kind of pros and cons. I think the pros is, yes, it neutralizes my extra attacks. 
but also cavalry for the cons is uh, it's really bad against Wrath of Bruin. That's true. That is true. So it, it requires, yeah, the smart usage. I don't think Alexander's, um, his Elrond's going to get any spells off. He's just going to be resisting. Same thing with the, the one will that Boromir has is going to be used with a whole bunch of might to try and resist one of those Bruinans. So it's tricky. It's tricky. But I, I do think he does have the slight edge, like you said, with the with the shooting, if he gets that. It's an easier game for his list, I think. Okay, so our second set of lists and second matchup today are two 800-point lists. So let's have Ian go over his 800-point list first, and, uh, and you can, I guess, you could go over your Lindir first. Um, sure, okay, so yeah, we'll talk about Lindir a little bit uh, as a bit of a spoiler to my list, I guess. So basically... Lindir is another hero you can take in the Rivendell list. He's hero fortitude, so he can bring along a dozen guys, which is actually kind of nice considering he's basically an attachment for Elrond, like the the twin or the the sisters are for Bard. Like that's how I kind of think of him. And what he does is he basically gives Elrond a free point of will if if Elrond's within six inches of him. He also provides uh, resistance to magic to all Rivendell models within six inches, or all, yeah, all Rivendell models within six inches. So in that effect, it kind of gives him, I don't know, like a staff of power kind of thing, you could say. So it basically just means you're going to get a lot more Wrath of Bruinans off over the course of the game. And you can also, surprisingly, I think he helps boost your numbers a reasonable amount too, because he is fairly affordable for an elf hero. Okie dokie. So then, on to the list. So I have Elrond fully killed out. He has four Rivendell Knights with him, three Rivendell Warriors with bow, six Warriors with spear and shield, three Warriors with shield, and then one Warrior with spear, shield, and a banner. My second Warband is Lindir, and he has uh, the heavy armor and the horse. And he has six Rivendell Warriors with bow and six Rivendell Warriors with spear and shield. And then some of you longtime listeners may recognize this from our Thorns Company episode. I have an allied uh, warband from Thorns Company with Balin, Biffer, and Nori in it. So that comes to 800 points, 34 models, which is 18 dead to break, 13 bows plus one throw stones, and then nine might plus Biffer's little tricksy free heroic move thing, if I can get that to go off. The basic strategy of this list is, you know, 13 elf bows is pretty good. Like, I mean, it's maybe around average to pretty good for, like, this points level. So hopefully I'll be able to pull the enemy to me. And then once I do that, I have a ridiculous amount of priority shenanigans and movement shenanigans. So I should be moving first. So Elrond should be able to be Wrath of Bruining every Bruining every turn. Bruining. Yeah. That's the basic premise, is you come to me and then you fall over for the whole game. So, I guess my first question is, why do we never see Lindir? He's like he's like a shaman type stat, right? And I don't know, I don't think he's as bad as like Gothmog's Enforcer in terms like of like buffing the main hero, but I just don't see him all that much. I know that, Ian, you've taken Lindir without Elrond before, which is like... I, I took it with pretty, Elrond. It, it, with it was a thousand points, so that's... Because it's like the only way you can get resistance to magic on Gilgalad. So I took Elrond, Gilgalad, Lindir, and... Okay, yeah, I remember that list. Yeah, so is it because Elrond's already... That one will a turn isn't reliable enough to cast Wrath of Brunine after you're out of will? Is that why that you don't see him a lot, you think? And the one will a turn isn't that effective? I mean, it's still four plus to cast, so mm-hmm. Elrond has his three base will, and you're also getting the resistance to magic, so you're going to have one dice to cast. Well, actually, hold on. 
So yeah, so I just reread the special rule. So it it is effectively giving Elrond like the staff of power. Wheel. He can use it for whatever he wants. So with that being said, it's like giving him the magic casting ability, or you could use it kind of to help resist spells if he's being cast on. So it just makes him a lot more durable against magic and a lot more reasonable to cast. I think the reason you don't see Lindir more is because his profile is kind of lackluster. Like, he's only fight five, he only has one attack, and his heroic stats are 1-3-1 one, one for some reason. So, like, if he had, I don't know, if he had two attacks, you'd see him a lot more, like, way more. If he had two might, and then maybe, like, if he was, like, 2-2-1, two, two, I think you'd see him more. It's it's just a weird kind of profile. <laughs> I think he's a bit expensive for his special rule, right? Because I think as good as Wrath of Brunan is... It's like you can't expect to cast it every single turn. Like even with all your priority shenanigans, like once you get charged, you kind of lose that turn's opportunity cost. Yeah, hence why I doubled down on all the priority and movement stuff. Because I got yeah, I think that makes yeah. sense. I think if you're gonna go that route to try to spam, rap, yeah, I was like, I gotta commit to it. <laughs> That's fair. I'm a fan of gimmicks and tricks in a list, and this list has at least a handful, right? I think that on like a competitive sort of level, it's going to be kind of awkward because you have the three dwarves, which you kind of need them in this kind of strategy because otherwise Elrond's going to be doing all the fighting. So you're going to be throwing the three dwarves in. And in scenarios where you can deploy as a death ball, I think that's fine. But if you're going to be the one that has to move to your enemy or if you're deploying in different spots, then I think it's going to be difficult. You don't have the heroic march because I don't think you're a green alliance. So Thorns Company wouldn't get the march, right? So yeah, that's that's a bit of an issue. Also, Thorns Company dwarves are generally lower defense. So they're actually not super hard to bring down if you do lose a fight. And I've used Biffer a couple times before, and the headbutt is fun, but it's kind of unreliable because you have to win the fight right first, and then you have to deal that strength four hit to get the heroic moves. It is fun, though, once you do get it. So, yeah, I think this is a really fun list to play, but I'm not sure how good it is competitively. I think it functions better in the post-Galadriel FAQ world that we live in. <laughs> before that, yeah, I, I agree. Like, I don't think it would do very well. Yeah, the the splitting up is going to be ugly. I'm just thinking, like, how you would even split this. Like, you want everything, all these things work together, right? I'm thinking, like, as an example, divide and conquer. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that one would suck. Like, I'd put all the elves together and just be like, all right, Thorne's company, you just... The elves, it'd be like that scene in the movie where they actually meet the knight and Thorne's company meet. You know, they're running towards each other from across the map. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'd just be the dwarves vibing in the corner while the elves actually do things. <laughs> I've always wanted to see a list with uh, foresight points mixed with Longbeard, though. And you finally made it happen. Never seen it in real life. Well, that is the one nice thing about Lindir. Because, like, the kind of profile he has, you expect him to be a minor hero. But he can lead 12 guys. So you actually get, like, to 34 isn't a bad number, considering it is, like, the amount of heroes I have. That's not bad for 800. So, so the Longbeard roll, you could re-roll priority, right? Can you adjust with Foresight the re-rolled roll? I would assume so. I don't see why not. I guess, it, well, it might depend which one happens first. I, I kind of was kind of assuming you could, but that's a good question. It says, during the priority phase, after the dice has been rolled, Elrond may choose to expend these foresight points. 
So I guess when you re-roll, that second roll is your final result, right? Yeah. So the way I read it is that you could. Just as you get to re-roll. We've hit the usual point in the night where we've begun to slowly try and break the game. It's happening. I think you can too. I, I think I, I think you can too. I, I don't think there's anything in the rules that say you can't. So come on, yeah. don't nerf Elrond more. He needs this. <laughs> Not that you're ever gonna see this combo, but now if there's only a way to work in the Palantir in here, then we'd be like You can work in Ring of Durin. Perfect. <laughs> okay. The three dwarves out of Thorin's company I'm very familiar with. I've played against a couple of lists that Charles has where he sticks a couple of those dwarves in, and they're really efficient at doing what you need them to do in those support roles because they're so cheap. So I really like those picks, although I know very well how difficult it is to balance the movement between uh, dwarves and, you know, move six troops and cavalry all at the same time. It, you know, it can be a bit of a daunting task, especially if you don't deploy together. If they get separated, they might be in a bit of trouble. As much as I like the idea of the elves and the dwarves running towards each other and then teaming up in the middle, unless Peter Jackson calls you and offers you money for that idea again, again, um, it's probably not going to work. Aside from that, I've been really searching for something to say about Lindir specifically because I, I think he's such a focal point of this list. When we said, oh, it's not like it's not like Gothmog's Enforcer, I'm thinking, well, that's good because Gothmog's Enforcer is the whole reason I'm not exactly big on these little support heroes that boost the big hero like that. I think he's an okay add. I wish his stats were a little bit different. I wish uh, that he wasn't 131 for no real apparent reason. Those three will points kind of like I, I look at them and I'm like, wait a minute, how where exactly does he want to use those? I think I know where. The special rule that he gives resistance to magic to people is an active special rule. So if he is immobilized, then nobody else gets the resistance to magic. Magic on magic, man. They're specifically <laughs> resistance will points, then, is what you're saying. They're resistance will points, probably. Yeah, probably. He doesn't have any magic. What else is he going to use it on? Another one of those profiles that's kind of drowned out by the few 85-point secondary heroes that Rivendell has. I'd like to see him more, just so we can see how this kind of list actually works out. Ian, um, Alex just gave me an idea. If Lindir can use his will and cast a spell called pre-FAQ Elrond, and give Elrond the 6-inch Wrath of Brunine, then I'm on the Lindir bandwagon. But before that happens, other than giving Elrond that one will, I don't think he's going to do that much. I think the magic resistant is nice, but he is pretty expensive for what he does. That's all I have to say about Lindir. It's just one of those profiles where it's like, okay, he just needs a little points adjustment or a little adjustment to it, and then it'd be really perfectly balanced. Mm. And I don't know, honestly, back on the on the three will thing, it kind of just feels like they gave him three will because they were going to make one of his abilities cost a will, and then they got rid of it costing a will and forgot to adjust the stats. <laughs> <laughs> eh. Okay, so the list I brought today, it's a pretty classic sort of Last Alliance list. I'm surprised that I have the least amount of crazy stuff in my list looking at all three of you guys, what you brought today. So I have Elrond with heavy armor and on horse. He's the leader. And in his warband are six high elves with shield, four high elves with spear and shield, one high elf with shield and banner, and six knights with shield. Second warband have Kirdan with six high elves with bow. And then final warband, I have Numenor allied in, Isildur on horse with a shield, two warriors of Numenor with shield, two warriors of Numenor with spear and shield, and two warriors of Numenor with bow and spear. 
So that's 32 models and I have seven might. The idea of the list is pretty straightforward. Two main threats, your leader Elrond and Isildur, and you have Círdan as the support. He provides all the auras and he can give them the hitting power that they need, especially Elrond. And Isildur is kind of your like your hero assassin with the ring ability is like the threat on his own. And yeah, uh, Elrond allowed me to go a little heavier on the cav and also have a little more bows than a normal list like this would have. So basically it's to offset the fact that I don't have a heroic march. Having more shooting with blinding light means that I don't have to worry about it most of the time because I should win most shoot wars. And the army bonus, I don't think we've talked about it much today, but the army bonus will be able to help me um, bump up that shoot war ability. And yeah, I mean, we've reviewed a number of Last Alliance lists in various episodes. So I think you guys know what the strategy is usually with this kind of list. Yep. Standard, good list, good synergy. Uh, Last Alliance, we've talked about it a few times before. Different heroes, but essentially it pretty much works the same. Maybe I would put a couple Hiles with uh, Shield or Spear and Shield with Kyrdan to kind of mix it up a little bit. You have a bit of flexibility with the Knights. Six is a little bit more than usual, but yeah, it's a, it can hit pretty hard. I tend to be more conservative going maybe two or three Knights. You can bump your numbers up by several models into the mid-30s, but yeah, it's a solid list. I think it would do well. I had tried something similar for the 600-point list at one point. Didn't work because fitting Elrond and Isildur in 600 points is quite the squeeze. But obviously, like Richard said, good synergies, typical solid combination. You've taken advantage of Elrond's ability to help out the knights, so this one's going to hit like a truck. I like it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned about 32 models. I, I think that's a relatively healthy amount for 800 points with high elves. I don't know, man. I think there's something wrong with my eyes right now because I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm reading a list that has Numenor bows that Charles wrote. And I just, that can't be right. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I don't understand at all. <laughs> and, and not only are they Numenor bows, they're maxed Numenor bows. I know. It's like this, this, this I, I, something's got to be wrong here. I think we got to restart this recording. <laughs> yeah, Ian, uh, I think this is your list. You know, it's the difference between whether I put bows on those two or shields. And in the end, I went with bows because I just thought, you know, if my goal is to ensure that I outshoot my opponent so I don't have to worry about ever marching to my enemy or the vast majority of the time marching to my enemy, then I might as well put in those two. And they are a bit softer in combat, but they have the spears. You know, hopefully they won't be the first to go down there. You know, they're going to be in the second rank. So I'm not too concerned. I just wanted to win the shoot war. Yeah, I, I don't think it's it's like it's two models. Like, who cares if they're D4 in, in this was Because because you got, like you said, you have the blinding light. And you, with that, you have 14 bow shots. So you're not really afraid to pull people into you. And also because the blinding light and like the number of cav, you have eight cav models. So I think you are kind of like, you're okay if you don't have the march. Like, you don't really care unless it's like seize the prize. But even then, you're going to be on it turn two, for sure, with a whole bunch of calves, so it's not a big deal. Yeah. Don't get too excited, though. Uh, Numenor's bows is as far as I'm going to go. I'm never going to go Corsair bows. <laughs> okay, so 
now to pit my list up against Ian's list. So Richard and Alexander, what do you guys think? I think overall, you know, I, I pull towards the last alliance list on this one. At 800 points, you've got two very strong heroes. Isildur is relatively well-costed, hits pretty hard, and you can give him the ring, which is just like an added bonus that uh, we haven't really talked about yet. But him being able to have the ring, unless, of course, you come up against Sauron, is a pretty useful trick to have up your sleeve. You know, I still really like Kyrdan. I think he's very solid support piece when you can get all of his auras up at once. Beyond that, a higher than normal number of Rivendell Knights makes the list surprisingly offensive. Yeah, I think for me, in a matchup, you have the movement, you have the numbers, and you have the second big combat hero. So I think in most scenarios, you're probably getting a bit of an edge. Yeah, I'm with Alex. I think uh, I think Charles is the more well-rounded and something I would be more comfortable taking into a tournament. I think Ian's is a bit more cheesy, very, very fun cheesy, where you spam the wrath spell over and over again. And yeah, but I just think that now that there's quite a few scenarios that split your forces up or require you to obtain objectives, I think that's where Ian's list would struggle. Okay, finally, we will roll a scenario, and Ian and I will face off with our lists. So the pool will be pool number six, which are the unique scenarios, and it will be a five, which is assassination. So Ian's list against my well, list. <laughs> can we roll a different one? Because I think Charles has got this one. <laughs> yes, I got too many, I've got too many soft targets that are D5, and you got... <laughs> You can only roll priority. You can't reroll assassination. <laughs> oh man! As soon as Charles said assassination, I'm like, "All right, open topic time." Because yeah, there's <laughs> not a ton of debate, I think, on this one. Because Charles has three heroes. I mean, yeah, Kirdan can be soft, but between Blinding Light and Or of Dismay, he's pretty tough to get at times. And the one time I did get him with Gothmog. He literally turned around and just, like, kicked Gothmog's warg in the face, and I never actually did a wound on him. <laughs> He's surprisingly tough. So, you know, I think as long as he isolates him, the rest of it is kind of obvious. Ian has a lot of slow-moving defense five targets, which just doesn't yeah. suit this matchup at all. I mean, I, I would say if we played this scenario ten times, I think Charles would get me probably, like, seven to three. I feel that feels around right, yeah. Just because so it's so much easier for him to get the kill, probably with his assassin. That being said, I'd probably get my kill though. I think if I can get to a sealer, because I, I like obviously you're gonna try and use the sealer as your assassin because you can't use Elrond. But I have to go to you because you got the blinding light. I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I, I don't actually think you're killing a sealer because you would have to throw Elrond in there. Which is yeah. really bad for you. <laughs> yeah, because then he's got an Elrond running around doing whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he gets me most most of the most of the rounds in that. You should have taken the ponies. <laughs> Shoot. Ah. Nine out of ten dentists. Ah. Nine out of ten dentists. I mean, <laughs> in defense of the dwarves, I mean, it's not great. Well, no, if, if Sealer's off his horse, he's going to have the ring on, which I still think he's probably going to get the kill, but... Biffer and Nori both have strike, and Balin does have heroic defense. 
there, like it depends on how overextended his shield or gets. If I can like pull him out and make him dismount, he can dismount it anyway if he put the ring on. So if I could like pull him out like way out of the line because yeah. he the one or two, that's nice. But it's him mounted is what's gonna get the the kill on. Yeah, because they're they're only like defense five, right? So I'm strength five, yeah. so wound you on fours. Yeah. 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 And then even if Balin, because he he does have defense, but he's only got one might. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our open topic for today. So, our open topic today is how to get into competitive play. This is a listener-suggested topic, and this was suggested a couple times. So listeners, if, if there are any topics that you would like us to cover, you could direct message us uh, on the podcast, Into the West on Facebook. And just uh, we always appreciate ideas for open topics and profiles that you'd like us to cover. So one of the suggestions was, how do we get into competitive play? I know that some people live in areas of the world where the game might not be big or there might not be really a community. And just how do you start a group to play more competitive themed sort of gaming? So the four of us, we've played out of a group in greater Vancouver area in Western Canada. And the group has been around for quite a few years but only I would say in the last few years that it's we've gotten like a decently sized group where we could get tournaments that have like over 20 people. Would you, would you guys say only probably the last like three years? Yeah, only really since the new edition, I think. Previous to that, we did have a lot of tournaments that were more in like the 12 to 14 player range. But I think since the new edition, we've definitely been managing a lot more tournaments in the 16 to 24 range. So I think in our group, the West Coast Hobbits, Ian and Alexander could probably speak more, but the early days of the group, it started out as like a Facebook group, right? Because that's what was going to be my first tip was to start a community where people can communicate and get together for games. Networking is huge. Facebook is just the most convenient one that I think a lot of groups graduate to because most people have a Facebook already. But I've heard of plenty of people like making Discord groups and whatnot, just anything you can get people together talking about it. And talking about playing games and stuff. Locally, we have people that get together at Games Workshop to play. So I guess it's really helpful if your local store, if you have a Games Workshop store near you or like a gaming store, if they give you space to game. Because I feel like having a place where people can meet up, it's a great starting point to have somewhere where you gather semi-regularly to play games as opposed to just at home. Because I know when I was growing up, Richard and I, we... Most of the time, we just played games against each other at home because we didn't know that there was a community. You know, if we did, I think we would have more likely traveled to game stores to play and more likely to have played competitively. But because we only played at home, it was more limited to just that. Yeah, I think because this is like more of a niche hobby too, um, we don't have like a huge player base. Like even at a games workshop, like most of the players are 40K players. So being able to play in public I think that's where we've seen the most growth in our group, where like, you know, a player would walk in and say like, hey, like I, I have models for this, but, you know, I, I just didn't have people to play with. So, you know, I think that's that's a really good way to attract players. As for the competitive thing, 
yeah, like you said, Charles, like we used to play a lot, but I remember it was only like to the death. And I feel like maybe a lot of these like home-based players tend to do that because it's the most straightforward. I remember thinking all these scenarios and all these objectives, like it just seemed like too much. And it's just like, let's get down to play and simple, you know, it's the most fun. But then I think after starting to use the scenario packs, I realized it actually things were not that complicated and it made things a lot more interesting, more strategic. And also the game is actually balanced around the scenarios. Like if we just every tournament had just fights to the death or to the death type of scenarios, I think we would have a very, very different meta. Yeah, I think a lot of the times a certain army might seem really like powerful. And when you start playing all 18 scenarios or even start playing like more than just several scenarios, you'll notice that, okay, I can see this army's weakness and I can see why this army wouldn't be good in this type of scenario. So I think if you want to get into competitive play and you want to be able to compete at a higher level, a really important thing that you want to start with is to play all 18 scenarios. Get familiar with objectives, different kinds of missions where you deploy separately, you deploy randomly, and assassination type scenarios movement scenarios it's really important to get the basics and to know like what kind of scenarios that your army is weak against and that's part of practicing for an event is to learn those strengths and weaknesses of your list just to jump back to like the, the growing the, the community thing real quick there was a point like because alexander and i and i kind of started the same way you guys did like it was just the two of us playing games for a while for like three or four years and, and no real events, like every maybe there'd be like a siege or something going on that we, we would go to, but nothing really big. And then once our community kind of started growing, we started getting going. For a few years there, after that point, we were having about those 12 person tournaments. I basically made it a goal to get a game, a Lord of the Rings game, in the games workshop at least once every two weeks, just so preferably on like one of the busier weekends. Just so people could see, oh, there's still people out here, there's still people playing the game and getting that publicity. That's big because... You got to get a solid community player base and then you can build from there. Yeah, I had no idea how many people think that this game doesn't exist or doesn't know that people still play this game. Like we've been playing at Games Workshop almost weekly, at least once every two weeks for like three, maybe four years. And there's still sometimes people walking up to us and be like, oh, I had these models back when the movies came out. I didn't know people still played. So I think playing in stores is, is a great way to get more players into the group. And the other thing is I wouldn't really worry about organizing a tournament and becoming a TO. All you have to do at the beginning is to get regular games going. Our friend down in Portland, Pat Bertoli, he was on our Suladan episode. That's kind of what happened was he heard about our tournament up here. He drove from Portland up to Vancouver to attend one of our events. And then he went home and got a couple people together and they just started playing. And now they have, I think, close to 20 people, if I'm correct in the Portland group over the last three or four years. So once you have enough people in a regular player base, then organizing a tournament isn't difficult, but you have to build a small community to get there. And on that point, as for building up a competitive community, you, you do just have to start running tournaments. And it doesn't matter if it's like eight people showing up. It's just people showing up, you're getting games in against different kinds of opponents, so you're learning more, you're learning other things, right? And that, that makes a big difference. 
I will also say if even doing that is daunting, and like like you kind of mentioned, there are 18 scenarios you have to learn from now, you could start with six. That's how, at least, I don't know, that's how Alexander and I started the first tournaments that we went to. We only had six scenarios to choose from, right? And then they released six more, and oh my god, there's so many. But just, you can learn a set few and run things from there, and then when you want to expand, you can, right? Yeah, just to add to that, like, um, I guess once you start the hosting tournament stage, maybe even, like, try different styles and not be solely set on just the one. Because I know locally, you know, we always like to switch up the points values because we don't want it to get stale. And also, like, you don't know exactly what the player base sometimes would prefer. I know, like, our group here on the podcast probably very much like the 800s. But then that also reflects in comparison to our general group or a little bit more experienced and we may have a bigger collection than the average. So there are also a lot of players that prefer like a lower points value. So yeah, different points value tournaments, you know, random scenario packs or set scenario packs or just, yeah, try different things. If you want more tips on how to build a good event pack, we did cover that in the Zildor episode. Feel free to check that out. But it's good to have a little bit of consistency. So like Richard said, choose maybe one higher points value that you play locally and one lower points value. So that way, if you do like a one-day event, you would be able to get more games in at lower points. And then if you ever want to do a two-day event, you could switch to the higher points. And having these points values set in the community, it's easier for newer people to come in because a common question that newer players will have is, Oh, how many points do you guys play? If you just tell them, oh, we play anything from 300 to 1,000, it's going to be hard for them to kind of know what to buy, how to build this. But if you say like, oh, we usually play 400 and 800, then their first goal will be try to put together a 400-point army. So it's more accessible for uh, newer hobbyists. And a couple of things about like getting together and having like a game day or a mini one-day tournament is maybe time your games. Because our first trip outside of Vancouver internationally for a tournament is Nova. And when we went to Nova in 2017 and we came back, we started timing all of our games because it it was a totally different experience. And most tournaments that you attend, the games will be timed. It, It adds a whole layer of strategy when you have to manage your time and grab all of your objectives before the time runs out. So I think it's really good, not just for preparing for tournaments, but just general competitive play to play with an alarm clock. Like when we play casual games at Games Workshop, we still prefer to have our games timed just for that practice. So the other thing is, and this might not seem like a big deal, but I think it is. And it's if you host an event, have some sort of prize support. I think it's great to get people to want to come. And also it makes people more motivated It gives the event a competitive spirit that's also friendly. You know, it doesn't have to be a big prize. Uh, I've seen friends over in the United States where they get store credit from the gaming store that they're playing at. Usually gaming stores be happy to do it because it benefits them too. It gives them business. And the winner of the tournament or winners get a little bit of money to spend on stuff they want in the store. So I just think it's it's a great start if you want to play competitive is to make sure you have a little bit of incentive. I guess one more thing I had was it's worth traveling to tournaments if you want to get into competitive gaming. I know that it seems like a big commitment and a lot of effort to drive for more than a couple hours or get on a plane even. 
to go to an event, but it is a very different experience. And if you want to learn, kind of see what the top players in your area or even the world, how they play and how the tournaments there, how they're run, you can watch as many videos or read as many blogs, but going there in person actually like is the best way to experience it. It's the best way to understand, you know, how a big tournament is played. And they're a lot of fun as well. But if you want to play competitively, that's really going to be worth it for you. I think one thing I'm just going to add quickly, because it, it jumps a bit back to growing your local group, aside from traveling to events, because we've done that a few times ourselves, the four of us. But I find that when you grow a group to, you know, to 10 players, a dozen players, and then after that, over that up to 16, 18, 20, 24 a lot of the competitive gaming starts to almost develop organically at that point, just because you get a mix of players that come to all the same tournaments, you get to know each other, you start to get to play over a dozen people, you know, you get games in regularly, so that when you go to those tournaments, the competition creates itself. It's like friendly rivalries. You start, you know, being like, oh, you know, I'm going to this tournament and... You start thinking about some of the other players and what you need to play against them. And it all just kind of comes hand in hand, one step after another. Of course, at least we've been fortunate enough in our group uh, that it's all very friendly, even the very competitive side of it. But yeah, that's more of the local competition. But yeah, I agree with Charles. If you want to be really, really, really competitive, going to tournaments elsewhere or traveling to larger events is a good way to do it. It's a great experience, but it is very expensive. You know, competitive gaming can mean different things to different people. And there's obviously ways to be competitive locally. And then there's ways to be competitive where you do something like Charles, where you go halfway across a, a continent and then come home with trophies. And uh, not a lot of us got to do that. I usually get to come home with, where did you finish? None of your business. Be quiet. <laughs> we forgot the most important tip is to listen to podcasts. You don't even need an opponent to play with. Just sit at home and listen to our podcast. <laughs> and then you can call yourself a competitive player. This amount of advertising is painful. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, as you can tell, we, we reached out and did not get any sponsors. And now we just have Richard telling you that listening to our podcast is what makes you a competitive gamer. It's not. We are our own sponsor. I am the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... Those have been our tips on how to get into competitive gaming. Thank you all for listening and look forward to the next episode of Into the West. Bye.